Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Friday, the 13th of August, 2021. This is the birthday of Fidel Castro, someone that I've learned to understand is so misrepresented in our American culture. And we will be rebroadcasting this show on Monday, August the 16th, 2021, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is our 69th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight. And thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness. Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. Tonight's show is part one of a two-part focus on Afghanistan and the cost of war with Matthew Ho, a Iraqi and Afghanistan veteran and State Department employee who resigned his job in response to what he perceived was an immoral war. We are blessed to have a fascinating and eye-opening dialogue on the costs of war with Matthew Ho. Enjoy. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby Austin. This is Bringing Light into Darkness with your host, Pedro Gatos. Today is Friday the 13th of August, 2021, and this show will be airing live on Monday, August 16th, 2021. As you may be following, there are issues rapidly unfolding in Afghanistan as we speak. And before introducing our very special guest, I just wanted to share a couple of things. The thing that has really bothered me, and it really bothers me in my soul, is the continuous misrepresentations to the American public by our government officials and the uncritical acceptance by our media of those misrepresentations of what our foreign policy is doing throughout the world. Whether it was in Vietnam, we had to learn through the Pentagon Papers that we were being lied to. Ralph McGee wrote Deadly Deceits, his 21 years in the CIA, reflecting how he was sending cables back. The North Vietnamese strength was extraordinary. But our government officials kept on trashing his intelligence reports to lie to the American people that we were that we were making progress. The same with Iraq and Libya in 2011 and the Russian bounty stories. All of these were lies, allegations without facts, without evidence that we have detailed on bringing light into darkness to reveal their deceit. So today, as I was preparing for the show for tonight, I was listening to CNN and John Kirby, the Pentagon spokesman, and the same thing is happening with Afghanistan. A narrative is created absent of many facts in the American public due to the abandonment of real journalism by our media are largely left in the dark to trust these talking heads. 
With Afghanistan, there was a piece written by Craig Whitlock. It was a Washington Post article dated December the 9th, 2019, entitled At War with the Truth. And these were the Afghan papers, a secret history of the Afghan war. It's a remarkable article reflecting continued remarkable deceit by our government to the American public, this time in Afghanistan. It's an interview of a lot of folks, and I just want to read some excerpts about the coverage of Afghanistan to the American public, or the absence of that coverage that reached the American public. But U.S. officials constantly said they were making progress. He writes, they were not, they knew it. And again, this is from this exclusive Washington Post investigation outcome. Quote, making rosy pronouncements they knew to be false, end quote hiding unmistakable evidence the war had become unwinnable, end quote. The documents were generated by a federal project examining the root failures of the longest armed conflict in the U.S. history, namely the Afghan war for some 20 years now. They include more than 2,000 pages of previously unpublished notes of interviews with people who played a direct role in the war, from generals and diplomats to aid workers and Afghan officials, end quote. Quote, the U.S. tried to shield their identities and conceal nearly all their remarks. After a three-year legal battle, the Washington Post won the release of the documents under a Freedom of Information Act. So for three years, we were consciously not being accessed this information that knowingly would reflect a much different reality than what we were being told by our government and State Department officials. This guy, Douglas Lute, L-U-T-E, He's a former U.S. ambassador to NATO. He's a U.S. Army Lieutenant General, a three-star general who served as the White House Afghan War Czar during the Bush and Obama administration, told government interviewers in 2015, quote, we were devoid of a fundamental understanding of Afghanistan. We did not know what we were doing. He added, we didn't have the foggiest notion of what we were undertaking. And more to the point, in these Afghan papers, Quote, since 2001, the Defense Department, the State Department, and United States Agency for International Development has spent or appropriated between $934 billion and $978 billion U.S. dollars, according to an inflation-adjusted estimate calculated by Netta Crawford, who's a political science professor and co-director of the Cost of War Project at Brown University. And again, this is data from 2019. The Cost of War was a source of that $1 trillion, but those figures, quote, do not include money spent by other agencies such as the CIA and the Department of Veteran Affairs, which is responsible for medical care for our wounded veterans, end quote. Farther in the article, the document also contradict a long course of U.S. presidents, military commanders, and diplomats who assured Americans year after year that we were making progress in Afghanistan and the war was worth fighting. Several of those interviewed described explicit and sustained efforts by the United States government to deliberately mislead the public. They said it was common at military headquarters in Kabul and at the White House to distort statistics to make it appear the United States was winning the war when that was not the case, end quote. Every data point was altered to present the best picture possible. That's according to Bob Crowley, an Army colonel who served as a senior counterinsurgency advisor to the United States military commanders in 2013 and 14. He shared that with these government interviewers. And then finally, 
I just wanted to indicate that John Sopko, S-O-P-K-O, he was the head of the federal agency that conducted the interviews, acknowledged to the Washington Post that the documents show the Americans have constantly been lied to. So when we think of Iraq, or when I do, and we think about Vietnam, and the millions that have died as a result of our interventions, and I think about John Kerry's half dozen misrepresentations about the Syrian gas attack of August 21st, 2013, deceit that took us within a whisker of yet another unjust war in Syria, I just uh, get infuriated. But today, we are very blessed to have with us, returning to bringing light into darkness, Matthew Ho. Matt, welcome back to Bringing Light into Darkness. Hey, Pedro. Thank you for having me back on. Listen, let me just do a short introduction. Matt had nearly 12 years' experience with America's wars overseas with the United States Marine Corps, Department of Defense, and State Department. He has been a senior fellow with the Center for International Policy since 2010. In 2009, he resigned in protest from his post in Afghanistan with the State Department over the American escalation of the war. Prior to his assignment in Afghanistan, Matthew took part in the American occupation of Iraq, first in the 2004-5 period with the State Department Reconstruction and Governance Team, and then later in 2006-2007 to in Anbar Province as a Marine Corps company commander. When not deployed, Matt worked on Afghanistan and Iraq war policy and operations issues at the Pentagon and State Department from 2002 to 2008. So you've really seen the inside of the machinations that are causing so many so much grief. Do you mind just sharing what provoked and maybe the path that led to your resignation from the State Department? Well, I, I think I was just intellectually and morally broken at that point. You know, I've been part of the wars for too long, and um, I continue to make excuses for being a part of them, continue to lie to myself, you know, like that any any intellectual and moral honesty that I had within me, I had basically uh, chained down and, 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 and closed the door on in my mind. And um, yeah, so by the time I got to Afghanistan in the spring of 2009 and realized that this war is no different than the Iraq war, most of my experience up to that point had been with the Iraq War, you know, both going there twice to it and then working on it uh, in Washington, D.C. Yeah, by seeing that, there is no difference between the Iraq and Afghan War, at least from the American perspective, right, in terms of what is this war about, what does it mean, what are we doing here, what are the consequences going to be, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, yeah, I, I just could no longer go on with it, and five months into that, deployment over there as a State Department political officer embedded with um, the U.S. military. Yeah, I, I resigned in protest. Mm -hmm. uh, many of the things that are brought up in the uh, Afghan papers by the Washington Post and Craig Whitlock, you know, were well known, you know, and people went along with it. And, I mean, one of the things that's so, which, why, those, why that series, and I should say, actually, that it's either out or it's coming out soon. Craig Whitlock has a book on this on the Afghan papers that's being published. Again, either it's either just been published or it will be published soon. So I would recommend that to people. But certainly what was known, what we were experiencing in the war, compared to what was being said about the war, was a huge disconnect. And people knew that whether they're in the wars, you know, in Afghanistan or in Iraq, uh, you know, I think from the Americans' perspective, it's really difficult to uh, divorce or disentangle 
the Iraq and Afghan wars. They're basically the same war, just in, in, in different locations for the Americans, for the Iraqis and Afghans, of course, it is uh, their own unique, their own wars, their own suffering, etc. Well, you know, one thing, Matt, that I wanted to ask you about, because you were in both theaters and you have such broad understandings on a lot of these connected issues. But I remember in Iraq, there was an immense investment of capital and unaccountability of billions of dollars, much of it in cash, and this reconstruction, quote-unquote, type of contracting that, that went on. Uh, Paul Bremer had 100 orders that basically privatized the whole economy, mm-hmm. and it became an incredible moneymaker for a lot of corporations that had very little experience in what they were contracted for, some of them at least, under the Bush administrations. But one of the things that they talk about in the Afghan papers, and in your article, by the way, in the Newsweek article, it has to do with the corruption in Afghanistan and the kleptocracy kind of notion. So at the end of the day, I remember Smedley Butler famously identified for all of us in black and white very clearly what a racket it was in war, that some people made huge amounts of money while our sons and daughters, so many of them, perished in war or were permanently scarred from war. Smedley Butler died June 21st, 1940. He was nicknamed the Fighting Quaker He was a major general in the U.S. Marine Corps, and at the time of his death, the most decorated Marine in U.S. history. Butler was a double winner of the Medal of Honor, one of only 19 people to be so decorated. He wrote in his piece, War is a Racket, and I quote, The normal profits of a business concern in the United States are 6, 8, 10, and sometimes 12 percent. But wartime profits, ah, that's another matter, 20 60, 100, 300, and even 1,800 percent. The sky is the limit. All that traffic will bear. Uncle Sam has the money. Let's get it. One of his most widely quoted statements in 1935, I spent 33 years and four months in active military service, and during that period, I spent most of my time as a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street, and the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer, a gangster for capitalism, I helped make Mexico and especially Tampico safe for American oil interest in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the national city banks to collect revenues in. I helped in the raping of half a dozen Central American republics for the benefit of Wall Street. He just goes on. I helped make Honduras right for the American fruit companies in 1903, basically indicating war is a racket, a financial windfall for some. Can you talk a little bit about when they say the Afghan war has cost more than $2 trillion, a lot of that money has made some people rich. Oh, yeah. Can you just talk about about that a little bit, your reflection from Iraq and Afghanistan? Absolutely. Well, first of all, I think that these wars are symptomatic of our political system. So Clausewitz, the uh, famous German military theorist and philosopher, you know, he defined war as an extension of politics by other means. And I think if you understand our American political system at its core, being a protection racket, right, being a patronage system, right, I mean, like, uh, people are elected to office, whether they be at the local level, state level, federal level, and they are dominated by money. They take money from, from people and uh, institutions and corporations, and then they do their bidding. It's basically a protection racket. And I think that extends into the U.S. wars, and not just now. I mean, the very first uh, impeachment of a cabinet official 
in the U.S. history occurred during the Grant administration when, I can't remember off the top of my head, if he was the Secretary of War or Secretary of the Interior. But anyway, and can't remember his name either off the top of my head, right? But however, the impeachment was over the money that was going to reservations, the Native American reservations. The money was being siphoned off, right? I mean, and that was all part of the American war, you know, the U.S. government's war against Native Americans, against, you know, uh, the indigenous and First Nations people. So um, I think it's always been with, with us, this racket. But certainly, Americans have gotten very rich off of this. Basically, the best way to understand that is before these wars in 2001 begin for the United States, and of course they predate that, right? The Afghan war goes back to the 1970s. But in terms of direct U.S. military involvement in more than what we were doing in the 90s, say, um, I think the, the easiest way to see that is in 2001, you have this war economy develop within the United States. And we're seeing with the new census numbers that the United States has gained about 50 million people in its population uh, since uh, the turn of the century. However, you know, the only parts of the federal government that have grown in this century so far has really been the defense, intelligence, development, as well as all the you know, the money going to the financial industries uh, as well, and Homeland Security, too. So what, what that does, though, is that makes Washington, D.C. the wealthiest place, the wealthiest region of the United States. You have Washington, D.C., depending upon which source you look at, you know, which report you look at it, has six of the eight, seven of the ten, right, uh, nine of the twelve wealthiest counties around Washington, D.C. in the country. So where in the past, the, the wealthiest parts of the country would be around New York City, around Silicon Valley, uh, around Tulsa and Dallas because of the oil. We've seen in this, in, in this century, these last 20 years, we've seen Washington, D.C. become the wealthiest region in the United States. And it's because of these wars. So lots of Americans have gotten rich off of these. Uh, I'll give you an example uh, how this works. In 2000. Four, or may, it might have even been late 2003, but by 2004, the U.S. Congress had appropriated more than $16 billion for Iraqi reconstruction. I mean, that, that pales in comparison to what the United States would eventually spend in Iraq on, you know, so-called reconstruction, and certainly much less than what the United States spent on Afghanistan, where the United States has spent, just to give you an idea of that total number, the United States has spent upwards of $180 billion on reconstruction in Afghanistan, far more than what the United States spent on reconstruction of Europe after World War II through the Marshall Plan, when you adjust that money, right, for inflation. Right. Yeah. A Council on Foreign Relations article in, in 2018 indicated that the Marshall Plan funds from 1948 to 1952 equaled $13.2 billion, which would equal $135 billion in 2018 dollars. Back yeah. To but, but you, so what well, you see the $16 billion mm -hmm. appropriate by the Congress for Reconstruction, about 40% of that $16 billion never left the United States. Mm -hmm. It goes right to these major contractors in terms of overhead and management costs. And then, of course, that the remainder of that $16 billion then gets pushed down to subcontractors who take their share, right? And these are all American and, and some European 
uh, contractors. And so absolutely, people are making, corporations are making hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars off of these wars because these wars are putting money directly into you know, their corporate bank accounts uh, without them even doing anything. It, it, I think it's worse than most people expect or think because like so much of that money never even leaves the country that the Congress appropriates for these wars. It really is, when you look into the numbers, it, the racket is astounding. And then, of course, when you see the connections that are elected officials, you know, of course, you know, Dick Cheney being the best example. He had been head of, of Halliburton before he was uh, Halliburton's a major uh, logistics and construction company, uh, also oil and gas as well. His relationship to Halliburton and the amount of money Halliburton makes off of these wars, and he's just the easiest example. But there are uh, people all throughout Washington, D.C. who benefit from this. This war has made a lot of people in the United States wealthy. Well, the other thing is that public support for these wars is most difficult to sustain to when Americans get killed and injured. And so over the last number of decades, especially in Afghanistan, a lot of the fighting has been done by private contractors. And so it's kept from the view of the American public in the sense of the real casualties of the war. Before we turn to the real casualties of the war, I did want to mention one of the things that you have and will repetitively hear on the cable news network, CNN, MSNBC, the NPRs, when these pundits are talking about the impending takeover of Afghanistan by the Taliban, is all of these warmongering people so concerned about us leaving Afghanistan so abruptly and all the gains that have been made for women over the last 20 years. That is nearly a complete rewriting of history when you look at what U.S. foreign policy has done historically with respect to women's issues in Afghanistan a huge myth that we have been promoting the rights of women in Afghanistan rather than the opposite. There's a guy, his name is John Ryan. He's a PhD and a retired professor of geography and a senior scholar at the University of Winnipeg in Canada. And he talks about the Western media never mentioning that for a brief period of time, Afghanistan once had a progressive secular government with broad popular support. It had enacted progressive reforms and gave equal rights to women. It was in the process of dragging the country into the 20th century. And as British political scientists, you may have heard this guy, Fred Halliday, stated back in 1979 of May, he said, quote, probably more has changed in the countryside over the last year than in the two centuries since the state was established. And he was talking about the revolutionary government that came to power in 1978, April 27th. And he also documented the decisive influence the United States foreign policy had on undermining this secular and truly revolutionary uh, progressive government that benefited women, unlike anything since or before. Uh, can you speak a little bit about that period of time and those types of issues? Because he also indicates not only did it affirm separation of church and state and labor unions were legalized and health care and education became priorities, women were given equal rights and girls were able to go to school, child marriages and feudal dowry payments were banned, but also a lot of the debts were abolished, landlords and money lenders had been charging to 24% interest and all that. What I'm trying to get at is that the women later on, after the Russians actually left in 1989, they were taking up arms to keep these basic human rights we take for granted and to fight 
these jihadists and mujahideen fundamentalists that the U.S. and Saudi Arabia were arming and funding. And the Taliban. Mm -hmm. So that history is just completely left out. And I think it's really important that people become familiar with that. Can you fill in the blanks a little bit about that period of time? Yeah, it's it's very inconvenient for the U.S. narrative in Afghanistan to understand what has occurred in Afghanistan, particularly since 1973, which is, you know, it's it's always difficult to put a mark on the calendar and say this is when history begins. You know, I mean, it's just it, it, it's it's fraught for for a lot of reasons, as people understand, right? I mean, where, when do you say something starts? You know, everything has antecedents. However, with Afghanistan, I think if if we have to put a mark on the calendar, I think you put it in 1973 when the king is deposed, and he's deposed by socialists. Uh, including his nephew, because even though Afghanistan had been relatively peaceful for the period that the king had reigned, more than 40 years, it was basically a country that was being left behind. In, in any data point, you know, any type of statistic or metric, it ranked at the bottom of the world for, you know, education, health care, infrastructure, etc. And so what this did, though, after the king was deposed and the socialist government came to power, it was, then that was then deposed by a Marxist government, you know, but what they brought in were reforms including women's rights, including the, the, the ability for women uh, not just to uh, leave the house unescorted, but to wear what they would like to wear, you know, to go to school, to have opportunities, to travel, to go to the doctor, those types of things that the leftist governments, these, these Marxist uh, uh, communist governments brought in, that so divided the country. And I think a lot of people can understand this division because we see that here in the United States as well. We see a division not just based upon race and class, but in terms of education, in terms of geography, in terms of urban versus rural, religious versus secular. Uh, you could see that debate right now with people refusing to take vaccines, right? We have a very well-understood split in this country that can be understood through demographic groups. And the same happened in Afghanistan. And so you had this uh, conflict between urban and rural, secular and religious. And then also, too, then unfortunately it breaks down into ethnic groups as well during the Soviet war. But, I mean, to give you an example, I was in, when I was in Afghanistan, I had a, a, a man say to me, you know, my province was the second province to rebel against the government. And I said, oh, okay, well, you know, what, which, and this is Badakhshan province up in the northeast. And I said, well, what, what made you guys rebel? And he said, because the, the government came to our villages and asked us what our wives' names are, mm, right? right? So you had that, right? I mean, you had that type of intrusion on modernity into very conservative rural, and that split was utilized by the U.S. government, by Pakistan, by the Saudis, for their own interests in Afghanistan. And, of course, that's how we end up with the Taliban. But to your point about 2001, Taliban come to power throughout Afghanistan, 95, 96, 97. Uh, but in 2001, when the United States enters and they bring back, the United States brings back into power all those warlords that the Taliban deposed in their rise to, to power. These are the people that were the Mujahideen, those Islamist, jihadist, rebel leaders that were furiously religious, very adamant in their misogyny. And so these were the people who the U.S. brought back to power. So the idea that somehow the United States put into power in 2001 and for the last 20 years has kept in power men who are committed to women's rights is a complete obscenity. 
You know, I mean, there's so much misunderstanding and so much gets reported and spoken in the press, so much commentary that is just incorrect. Hey, Matt, excuse me. Before we move on, we do need to take a short break for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness. We'll be back right after this. Do not touch that dial. 